Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Thursday, March 2nd edition of the Basement Academy. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day to get into the gymnasium of the soul. Hopefully, each of these episodes, each of these studies provides us an opportunity to work out, to stretch, to grow, uh, and to be strengthened uh, in our faith, hope, and love through Christ. Uh, again, just reminders, uh, this Sunday at 10, we'll be uh, having a results from our survey. The survey period's now closed, uh, closed on Tuesday. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet to Prayers from the Cloud, just Google Prayers from the Cloud. There'll be a place where you can put in your email address and away you go. All right, our morning psalm, Psalm 62, um, it's a great little psalm. And it's got this line in it that touches on where we finished yesterday about money and all of that. And so it's got this great line, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And so perhaps Jesus had this in mind when he was talking about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Psalm 62. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him. For God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. That you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Amen. Just the psalm, it, you know, some of the psalms and the psalmist are just reminding themselves of what is true. And that's a lot of what we have to do in this life, right? Remember, God is good. Remember, he is with us, Emmanuel. Remember, he is risen. We forget our, our, our brains leak. The world presses in. My salvation and my honor depend on God. Not on my accomplishments, not on my works, not on my merit, not on my riches. God alone is our salvation. Amen, amen. Okay, uh, I'm gonna take one question from the academy today. Just wanna make sure I've got enough time for it. Um, good question, kind of a theological question, a little wonky. But I'm glad for that because it's, 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 a, it's a great discussion. Is there scriptural support 
for the existence of the invisible church. What does the scripture tell us about the relationship between the visible church, the invisible church, Christ, and the kingdom? Okay, so that's the question, mostly about the visible and invisible church. And so some of you are going, I'm not sure what that question's even about. What is this visible church, this invisible church, right? Um, so it's a concept, it's a theological um, idea, concept, framework, like the Trinity, right? The word Trinity nowhere appears in our scriptures. But the concept or the idea of a God who comes to us as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. And so the, the concept of the Trinity got worked out over time, and now we have Trinitarian formulas, we have Trinitarian hymns, our baptismal creeds, etc. Okay? So the idea of the visible and invisible church, um, it's not, so these words are not directly in Scripture, but the, the concept may be there, okay? Uh, I, I tend to believe it, it is. The, the idea is that the visible church is that church, that gathered community that you can observe, you can see, you kind of you can touch and, and handle it. You can see those who gather in churches, right? And I don't mean just physical church buildings. So when we're talking about the visible church, we're not talking about the physical structure of the church, you know, the 15305 Vint Hill Road, the, the brick wall with the steeple on, on top of it. Not that visible church, but the church is the people of God who are gathering, okay? Those who show up at Greenwich and all churches like Greenwich, who show up in buildings and in storefronts and in homes and back in the day in the catacombs and underground, where you see the people of God gathering, there is the visible church. Um, it can refer to the, sometimes folks think of it as the institutional church, the denominations and the denominational structures and, and things like that, the membership roles, etc. So the visible church is that which is observable. The idea of the invisible church is this idea that within the visible church contained as a subset of that is the invisible church or the true church. That is the truly born again, spiritual elect. We talked about the elect recently, um, those who were chosen by God um, as part of our uh, essential tenets study. So the invisible church are the true church, the true people of God who are known to God, who have embraced Jesus Christ, who have received the Holy Spirit, who are alive, who have been regenerated, who have been adopted into the heavenly family. So the idea of the visible and invisible church is that there's a larger group known as the visible church, everybody who goes to church. And within that is a smaller subset that is the true church, 
So the idea is the visible church is not actually, everybody who goes to church is not necessarily saved, okay? So the invisible church are the saved, right? The chosen, the elect, however we'd want to speak of that. Um, it's an idea that has some roots going back into the early centuries of the, uh, the church. Maybe Augustine uh, gave some nod in that direction. But, it, but this distinction between the visible and invisible church came forward during the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church, which kind of was the 600-pound gorilla, right? This was, in the thinking of the Roman Catholic Church, we are the true church. And so the papacy, so you've got the popes and the cardinals and all of the institutional structures that are going with that. Well, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, if you recall, if you've taken a Western civilization or other studied it in some other way from history, we know that at the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther bringing forward these ideas that he wanted to debate, the Roman Catholic Church was somewhat corrupt. And I don't say that as an angry Protestant at all, just as an historical fact, it's generally agreed that there had been some drift, um, both theologically and in belief structure, but also in the mechanics and mechanism uh, of, the, of the church, that uh, preferences were given to family, like nepotism and the like were, uh, was being practiced uh, for pastors, and there was you know, some power of the church to extract wealth and almost taxes from the people uh, and, and the like. I won't, I won't go rehearse all that. So the idea is that the reformers brought forward this idea that, oh, there may be an institutional visible church on earth, but there is an inv invisible church known to God that are the true people of God. Now, some of that might have been to justify their own existence because the Roman Catholic Church is now looking at the, these Protestant reformers as infidels, as heretics, right? Um, and so some of the invisible-visible distinction might have been a self-justifying act of the reformers to give legitimacy and credence to their movement, right, that was erstwhile criticized by the behemoth known as the, the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And so the question is, is there scriptural support for such an idea? Yes. I, I say cautiously, okay? Yes. Um, you know, like the Trinity, you, you, you go to certain passages and then you see this language and then you build a concept, Okay. So, so let me start in Romans chapter 9, and this is Paul, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's wrestling with what about Israel and its rejection of Jesus? So you've got Israel as the covenant family, Abraham's descendants, Moses, David, the prophets, etc. And then Christ is born, and they're looking for a Christ to be born in Bethlehem, uh, uh, Bethlehem Ephratah, you know, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, prophesied where one would come who would be ruler over Israel. So you had all these messianic prophecies. Well, he actually is born. And many in Israel rejected that. Jesus was rejected. He, was, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Uh, we read in John chapter 1. 
And so Paul's wrestling with this. What, what do we do with the fact that Israel has chosen the, the, the chosen people, but now they've turned their back on their own Messiah? And so uh, let me read from uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. So he's saying, what, what is going on? They've got all of the blessings of being the chosen people, the promises of the temple, etc. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So that's the money verse, okay? That's the key verse. Not all who are descended from Israel, not all who are from Israel, Israel, that is Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, not all those who are descended from Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and then the descendants from there, not all who are ethnically, uh, genealogically descended from Jacob or Israel are Israel. And so Paul's using the same name Israel in two different ways. Not all who are ethnic Israel a physical Israel, a genealogical Israel, not all of those folks are the true Israel, the chosen people of God. So spiritual Israel, this notion of, so Israel now comes to be a stand-in for the true people of God. So not all of this, uh, genealogical Israel are true Israel, true people of God, or we would say Christians, right? Or, or the church, okay? And so, you know, Paul develops this theme. So you have Gentiles who are actually Israelites, true Israelites, and you have descendants of Abraham who are not Israel. Well, wait a second. So, genealogical Israel, all who can trace their descent to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, etc. Okay, so you've got this genealogical family tree. That's the visible church, as it were, the visible covenant community. But not all of that visible covenant community of Israel are part of the true Israel of God. That is the true spiritual people of God, or as what we now know as the church. So that's the concept, okay? The other way of coming at this would be that of um, the remnant, okay? I get, uh, one other passage I wanted to read. I'm sorry, I almost forgot that. Uh, Galatians chapter 6. Um, Paul, at the end of his greeting, and, and he's wrestling with the same thing. In Galatians, you've got... I'll just say he's wrestling with the same thing in Galatians, okay? And so... At the end, he says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. It's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you're ethnically descended from Israel and have received the right of circumcision to mark yourself out as one of the visible community. 
what matters is a new creation, is a new heart. And then he goes, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, this distinction between outward and inner, okay? Outer signs and inner realities. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. The Israel of God is the true people, the true church, okay? Um, the, the, the Old Testament concept of this has to do with uh, kind of the remnant, okay? And so you have ethnic Israel, you've got the Israelites, they go into exile, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, etc. There are these faithful Jews, and then there's the unfaithful. And so the Psalms use this language, you know, not, again, not visible, invisible, but it's the idea that there are Israelites who are going to be cut off from the people. So there are those who are ethnically descended who are actually not part of the faithful remnant. So remnant theology runs parallel to this visible, uh, invisible church um, notion. So I believe this. I, I do believe this. So not everybody who attends a church on Sunday morning is necessarily a Christian, okay? And this is where this idea sometimes, you know, gets advanced, not in the same maybe invisible, visible language, but, you know, the I, people have kind of in a funny ha-ha way said, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. Just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're a Christian. So appropriately, churches call for faith, you know, on Sunday morning. And so our Baptist friends do this every Sunday, traditionally. You know, they have an altar call. If, you know, if, if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do so today. I, I made some language, some comment, an invitation like that on Sunday, right? Uh, grace and judgment. Um, and so, and I do that from time to time, but not every Sunday. So the idea is it's appropriate to call people in gathered uh, 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 spiritual gatherings, you know, church gatherings, to call people to make a commitment to Jesus because, you know, I don't know everybody who's walked in the room necessarily. And so I don't know if this is the day they're to get right. Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're necessarily a, a true believer. Um, pastorally, though, here's where it gets uh, kind of challenging. I am not in a situation to, I don't look at Greenwich and say, well, I don't think you're a true Christian because you haven't said the right words or you haven't done enough of the kind of things I think you should do. So pastorally, all who are baptized, all who have professed faith in Christ, all who are singing the songs, I will treat everybody who walks into the church, I will begin in the place of treating you as one who is certainly sympathetic to the faith. Now, obviously, I do know many of the people on Greenwich. I know their members. I, they have made a profession of faith. You can't become a member apart from making a profession of faith. If you've not been baptized, then we will make provision for you to be baptized. So baptized, professing believers, I will treat as believers. What else can I do? Why would I treat somebody who's baptized and made a profession of faith and treat them as if they were not a, a true believer? And so sometimes, you know, both at Greenwich, not often, but sometimes at Greenwich and beyond Greenwich, something bubbles up and this, this notion of, you know, there are people coming to Greenwich who aren't really believers. And I'm going, hmm, 
Well, which ones? Well, I don't know, but they're, they're here. Mm, I don't know. By what means would I discern or determine true faith in the heart of a person? What list of activities, what words, what actions would I be looking for to determine whether or not somebody is a true believer, part of the invisible church in a sense? And of course, here's where legalism and ultimately Phariseeism creeps in and kills the spirit. And what, what I've learned over time is different denominations have their own set of kind of unspoken, unwritten list, but it's there, it's known. So in the Pentecostal tradition, it would be things like speaking in tongues. In certain um, communities, it might be the manner in which you worship, closed eyes and raised hands. And, you know, those are real worshipers. If you're not raising your hands and closing your eyes and swaying to the music, you may not be a real believer. It's never said, but it's, it's, it, it creeps out, okay? Um, in, in the Baptist tradition, if you haven't been baptized by immersion, and in, I know this anecdotally, not by experience, if you haven't been baptized by our particular church, you know, we're not sure you've really been baptized because we, we need to really be sure you've been baptized the right way. And so that, that happens. Um, in the Presbyterian tradition, our parent denomination, if you're not engaged in works of social justice, then you may not really be committed to the kingdom and, and be a follower. In other places, in evangelical circles, if you don't vote the right way, right? If you don't vote Republican or something like that, then, you know, you may not, you know, be a, a true believer. So, so the idea, I, I think you get the idea there. So while I do believe and would assume that there are folks who do attend church from week to week at Greenwich or elsewhere who really haven't joined themselves to Jesus, I can't make that determination myself, but what I do at Greenwich, and if you notice my preaching, I'm all, every Sunday I try to at some point turn and physically point to that cross that hangs there, you know, over top of the pulpit and the Lord's table and the choir loft, etc. I am constantly trying to point to Jesus on the cross and his death and resurrection because that's where salvation comes and that's where the, that, that's where the Holy Spirit works and brings people uh, to life. And then I will occasionally say if you have not made this commitment you know do so uh, do so today but ultimately we are saved by grace through faith not by works it's no set of lists speaking in tongues or you know social justice activities saves me it is it is god alone uh, my salvation and my honor depend on god we read in psalm 62 um the, the, so this is the relationship you know where's the scriptural support what's the relationship I, just a last word about Christ and the kingdom. Um, there's a word, I, I should have put it on here. Auto basileia. It's from the Greek. Auto self basileia kingdom. The notion is that Jesus Christ contains the kingdom in himself. Jesus possesses, expresses the kingdom so that when Jesus comes, the first things he says is recorded in, uh, was it Matthew and Mark? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So he's, an, he's uh, baptized by John, and then he begins to preach the good news of the kingdom, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. The kingdom's at hand because he is at hand. And so it's the idea that the kingdom of God is not a geographically mapped kingdom, right? Whereas other earthly kingdoms are defined visibly. They're geographically mapped. Here's the borders, right? Okay, there's, there's a geopolitical state, and those are the borders, and now we're out in international waters, and now we meet the borders of a new kingdom or a new realm. The idea is that the kingdom of God is not geographically mapped. It is spiritually mapped. All who are joined to Jesus Christ anywhere and everywhere are part of the kingdom of God. And so where you have Jesus Christ embraced, where you have him proclaimed, uh, where he is taught, there you have an expression of the, of the kingdom, not fully, but in part, okay? And so those who are joined to Jesus, who've, who've acknowledged that openly in baptism, in coming to the table, this, the kingdom is beginning to be manifest, not in fullness, but in an inaugurated way. And perhaps there's a future uh, discussion around this of inaugurated eschatology. The kingdom has begun. The church is that provisional, initial, incipient expression of that kingdom, but it will come finally, fully, and forever one day. And everyone who's in that kingdom will gladly bend the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord because Jesus is the kingdom. He is the king. Where you have the king, that's the better way of saying it. Where you have the king, there you have the kingdom. And the kingdom consists of uh, that place where people bow the knee and, and uh, graciously and, and winsomely and lovingly uh, obey their king, gladly obey their king. And the king says, if you love me, you will do what I say. And so they go out and love their neighbors, right? And so that's where you have the kingdom. So we're kind of moving away from the visible, invisible church, but I think it ties in the same idea. The kingdom is not geographically mapped. The visible church has geographic mapping, but the true spiritual, those who are joined to Jesus, they show up all over the place. Um, so all around the question, hopefully we've answered it in, in some uh, decent measure, and it may spur further questions, which I would welcome. Continue to submit your questions, and we'll take them on, okay? Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for um, the, the truths revealed in Scripture, and may we, through our faith and our hope and our love in Jesus Christ and our acknowledging of him in our lives, uh, demonstrate that we belong to your kingdom. By your grace and your grace alone are we such. And so we pray for your church, both visibly but invisibly as well, that the church may expand and grow and so reflect the goodness and grace of the kingdom of Jesus, in whose name we pray and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and keep you now and forevermore. Amen.